Well, welcome today. So glad to have you. If you're new, my name's Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here at Ridge Church. Glad that you're joining us. Uh, this guy has been in the news a fair bit lately. Uh, his autobiography, Spare, sold 3.2 million copies in the first week. I mean, it, it smashed records everywhere around the world. And it's the story of him growing up in the royal family and the hardships and the challenges that he faced. And it turns out that it, it wasn't that easy for him. I mean, his mother died at a young age. His, uh, he lived in the shadow of his brother. He was mocked by his family for being despair. Uh, he uh, was followed everywhere by the paparazzi, uh, written up in tabloids. And even his tours of, of military duty in Afghanistan, uh, his life was in danger because of the reporting of the press. It's not easy. In fact, he calls the royal family toxic. And with the exception of his wife and his mother and himself, he basically trashes everybody. I mean, his, his brother and his sister-in-law, his father and his stepmother, Queen Elizabeth, uh, the royal court, the press, his friends, the military. I mean, you name it, he just goes after all of them. And it's quite clear from, uh, from uh, his story that all is not well with the British royal family, with the press, with British society in general. But it's been fascinating to read some of the commentary that's come out in response to his book. In fact, uh, there's been all kinds of commentary. Uh, uh, one, some have pointed out that in a world with a heightened awareness of the issues of racism and poverty and powerlessness, uh, this is a story about a white man born into tremendous wealth as a member of one of the most powerful families in the world. Not exactly the most difficult place from which to begin a life. Others have pointed out his intense hatred for the media and the unwanted exposure it's brought to his family and the invasion of his privacy that he hates so much. And yet say, but look, he, he wrote a tell-all book. He's doing a, a Netflix docu-series. He's doing all this media. It seems a little disconnected. And others have pointed out that the book itself when he describes his own wild side, his alcohol abuse, his uh, dabbling with drugs, physically bullying some of his, his bodyguards, wearing a Nazi costume, using racial slurs with a Pakistani friend of his, uh, his sexual promiscuity. When he describes all of those things, he, he argues that he is not to blame for his behavior. It's, it's not him, it's his circumstances. It's, it's the institution that hasn't allowed him to be his real self and therefore... I mean, he's not to blame. That's fascinating because, see, the, the picture that develops is that there are sort of these two groups. There's him and his wife and his mother who, who really are basically good. I mean, they may have a few flaws. They may have done the odd thing that probably wasn't exactly right. But, but they are, those things are understandable and forgivable given the circumstances. But then there's the other group. The, the, everyone else in the world, his world, the royal family, the press, the, all the individuals who basically are not good. And there's a very clear line between sort of us and them. And this tendency to, to, to draw a line between us and them, between good and evil, this is a human thing. This is something that humans have done all throughout all of history. I mean, if you go back, way back into Greek culture before the time of Jesus, the the Greeks drew a line between creation, between, between the spirit, which was good, 
It was all good. Everything about the spirit was good. And the flesh, which was all bad. And that, that kind of thinking, that dichotomy, spirit good, flesh bad, seeped into Christian thinking, even though it's not a biblical concept at all, so that sometimes Christians think, well, anything to do with the body is bad, and everything to do with the spirit is good. It's not true, but there's that, that dichotomy that is there. And then later in history, at the time of the Enlightenment in the 1700s, they, there was this, this line that was drawn between human faculties. Rationality and logic was good, Emotions and imagination were bad. And they drew this very clear line between the two, which has seeped into this idea that, that science is all good. Can, science can do no wrong, and, and faith is all bad. And, and this is just this sort of dichotomy that has developed. And later yet, in the eight, late 1800s, Karl Marx drew a line not between creation, not between human faculties, but between social groups. The proletariat, the working class, good. The bourgeoisie, the, the, the middle class and the upper class, bad. And of course, that kind of thinking has seeped into the political discourse of our day. So that today, when it comes to politics, people are, are incredibly polarized. And, and if, you, you know, if you naturally lean to the right, then everything on the left is bad. And everything on the right is good. On the other hand, if you naturally would lean to the left, then, then everything on the left is good and everything on the right is bad. And if something on your side is wrong, if they've done something wrong, well, it's not really their fault because the other side made them do it. You see, this is just a human tendency to sort of draw a line between good and evil, between us and them. And... and and where it's hardest to see, and yet where it's most prevalent, is in our own lives. In Hollywood, uh, it's award seasons. So there's the, the Emmys and the, uh, the Golden Globes and the Oscars and the Grammys and all the awards. They're happening these days. And uh, the other day, there was uh, a, a journalist who wrote about the, the speeches given at the Grammys. And the journalist wrote, he said, uh, most of the speeches were exactly what you'd think. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I want to thank my producer and I want to thank my mother and and uh, you know I'm so inspired by the other nominees he said it's just the same as usual but he said there was two speeches that he really liked the one he loved because of its honesty it was a a speech given by a, guy, a drummer in the band wet leg his name was Harry Holmes and he loved it for its honesty Harry Holmes got up there he received his ward and he said this is such a magical evening my mind has gone blank I feel like I'm going to wet myself and then he sets down. I mean, that's his speech. He loved it. Simple, honest. But the other speech that he highlighted, that he thought was sort of the, the best, was a speech by Lizzo, the, the winner of the uh, Record of the Year Award. And she, uh, she dedicated her award to Prince. And she spoke about the importance of making positive music. And then she said this. In a world that is a lot... Uh, in a world that is a lot of darkness and a lot of scary stuff, I'd like to believe that not only can people do good, but we just are good. We are good inherently. You hear that? I mean, it's just so smooth. It's just part of the speech. But she draws a line. Them, scary, dark, bad. Us, good. Just good. In fact, inherently good, she says. It's fascinating to see. This is just a human thing. Bad out there, good in here. That's how the, much of the world sees this kind of a thing. 
but the Christian worldview. A biblical worldview gives us a very different way of seeing the world around us. There is a fault line between good and evil, but it doesn't run between aspects of creation, between spirit and, and flesh. It doesn't run between human faculties, between rationality and, and emotion, logic and imagination. It doesn't run between people groups, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, the left and the right. No, no, the Bible teaches that the line between good and evil doesn't run between us and them, but rather down the middle of both us and them. In other words, what the Bible teaches is that we're all sinners. And this is what Paul is going to explain next in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 1, if you remember back, Paul describes those who are engaged in all kinds of sin and wickedness. And here's what he writes in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then at the end of the chapter, he writes this. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then he adds this line. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Paul describes who do these things this evil and this wickedness says, they know what they're doing is wrong. They know that it's evil, but not only do they practice it, not only are they proud of it, but they approve of others who do it. And when we read that and we think, look at what they're doing, we think, that's disgusting. Their attitudes, their mindset, it's wrong and it deserves to be condemned for what they do. That comes at the end of chapter one. And we want to pick... Uh, Paul's writing right after that in chapter 2, verse 1. And here's what he says. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Well, that's not what we were expecting, Paul. I mean, what Paul is saying here is that if you judge those and them and they for the evil and the bad things that they do and all of their unrighteousness, he says, in the same way that you judge them in the same place, you condemn yourself because you do the same things. They do wrong and they're proud of it and they approve of what others do, but at least they're consistent in their stance. We, on the other hand, when we judge others for their wrong and for what they do, we bring judgment on ourselves because we do the same thing or at least similar things. But we act like somehow we don't or that we're different or that we're better. Turns out we're just more hypocritical. Turns out that we're more like Prince Harry than we want to admit. Like him... We have a tendency to work ourselves into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people. But at the same time, 
That same behavior or something similar in our lives seems not nearly so serious when it's ours rather than theirs. And we're often as harsh in our judgment of others as we are lenient towards ourselves. In fact, we gain a kind of quiet satisfaction by being able to judge others who do similar things to us, but to judge them because they do them worse and more than we do. This is a major problem. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was imprisoned by the Nazis, writes this. Nothing that we despise in the other man is entirely absent from ourselves. That's a fascinating statement, especially given that he was imprisoned by the Nazis. And Freud, he saw this same tendency in his patients. He coined a term for it, projection. The issues and the, and the problems that they had and the troubles that they had and the, the weaknesses, they had a, a tendency to project on someone else and then condemn them. The Apostle Paul. I mean, he points this out hundreds of years before either of these men came on the scene. He says, in passing judgment on others, you condemn yourself. He says, if you are so good at being able to see the moral failures of others, you can hardly plead ignorance when it comes to the moral failures in your own life, and they are there. So therefore, you also are due judgment. Here's what he says next in verse 2. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do, do such things is based on truth. Look, you might not see the hypocrisy in your life. But the people around you can see it. And even if you're so good that the people around you can't see it, God sees it because he judges in truth based upon the actions in your life. And then the Apostle Paul goes on to say this in verses 3 to 5. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul, Paul says this, if you're judging others and doing the same kinds of things, don't think that somehow you're going to escape judgment. You see, people say, well, look, you know, so far, the way I've lived my life, I haven't really experienced a lot of sort of judgment for my so-called sins, so probably I'm good with God. I mean, evil people, people who do all sorts of bad things, they get the judgment from God. I mean, if they do drugs, it wrecks their life. That's a judgment. Or if they sleep around, it wrecks their marriages. God's judgment on them. Or, or, or if, they, you know, if they steal, they lose their job or they go to prison. So therefore, it's God's judgment. And none of that stuff has happened to me. So I guess I must be basically a good person in God's eyes. And Paul says, no, no, no. You're thinking about it all wrong. The fact that none of the, the consequences for your sins have been come on your life is not because God thinks that you're such a good person. It's because of his, his kindness and his grace. Because he wants to allow time for you to repent. But if you scorn that, if you think that, oh no, therefore I'm good, I don't have to worry. What you're actually doing is storing up for yourself. Literally, the, the word that he uses is like gathering a treasure, only you're gathering up and collecting for yourself the wrath and the judgment of God all for one day, the day of judgment when you stand before God. And that, that is a dumb idea 
You see, the line between good and evil runs through you just as much as it runs through anyone else. And see, this is the point that the Apostle Paul is making. And that's this, we are all sinners. We're all sinners. You know, often people say, well, I don't know if there is a God, but if, he, if there is, and I stand before him on judgment day, and he says, you know, why should I let you into heaven? They'll say, well, I was, I was basically a good person. I mean, I didn't murder anyone. I didn't, I didn't steal or, or defraud anyone. But that sounds an awful lot like Prince Harry, doesn't it? Saying I'm basically a good guy and the few things I did aren't bad because everyone else did something worse. The thing is, you will always be able to find someone who did something worse than you. I mean, if you stole some money, you could find someone who's stolen millions of dollars. If you harm someone, you could find someone who's murdered. But if you murdered someone, well, you can find someone who is a mass murderer. And if you're a mass murderer, you can find Hitler. I mean, there's always someone worse that you can point to. But that doesn't mean you haven't done the same types of things. Only that you cover up your sin and excuse it by pointing to someone worse than you. And it isn't just people who don't believe in God. I mean, the same is true for Christians even more so. that There is, especially for Christians, a built-in tendency to think that somehow... We are better than others because, you know, we don't practice such evil things. We're not proud of it. And we don't approve of people who do. So clearly we are better than them. But when we think that way, we become simply self-righteous. Which makes us pretty much the same as Prince Harry again, doesn't it? We also have our faults and our sins. We should be aware of our human capacity for self-deception, not only in our emotions, but in our reasoning and our logic. And we should be aware of the tendency of all human beings to suppress the truth in our own favor. Are you aware of the hypocrisy in your life? I mean, can you see it? Chances are the people around you can see it. If you can't see it, if you're not aware of it, then one of the, the places to look for clues is, is those things that you rage against. Those things that make you so angry that you want to just condemn people and throttle people. When you look at that, you should start to quietly work backwards and say, what is it in me that is a reflection of that? Well, what, where is it that that's a picture of the, the sin and the hypocrisy in my own life? Because you see, we're all sinners. No one is good, not, not good as in the just perfect in our ways. That's the first point that Paul is making in this passage. But, but then here's the question that he wants to answer next. If we're all sinners, if we're all going to be judged by God, then on what basis is he going to judge us? And so Paul's going to answer that now. In verse seven, he, he says that, or verse six, rather, he says this. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Now, he quotes here from the Old Testament, from Psalm 62, 12, and he explains that you will be judged on the basis of your actions alone. That's how you'll be judged, which, which is the principle of exact retribution. Whatever you do, you get judged for. It is the foundation of justice. So what is the standard? Well, Paul goes on to say in verse 7, he says this, 
To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and who follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being uh, who, uh, who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Here's what Paul says. He says, here's the standard by which you'll be judged. If you are good enough in how you live, if you're good enough in how you live, you will receive eternal life. That's the standard. If you're always good, if you're persistent always in every way in doing what is right, if there's never a time when you have not been good, if you always seek God's glory, if you always do what is right, if you always live in light of eternity, if you never sin, then when God judges you, he will give you eternal life. That's the standard. But as Paul has pointed out, no one, not you, not me, not Prince Harry, not Mother Teresa, not even the Apostle Paul himself has lived that way. But if someone did, if they could, then they would be given eternal life. That's the standard of judgment for everybody. And that would be just. On the other hand, if you haven't lived that way, if you've ever been self-seeking, even in the good that you have done, if there's been behind that a motive to advance your own self, if you've ever rejected the truth, if you've ever done something in opposition to God's will, then you are due judgment because it's wrong. And therefore, you deserve punishment. You see, if we're, if we're not careful how we think about these things, then, then we can begin to think that God is unfair. I mean, people will say, well, it's not fair that just because I'm not perfect that God would judge me. I mean, can't he see that I'm a good person? I, I didn't murder or kill anyone. But you see, that argument only works in your favor. Imagine that one day, for instance, that the union family went out to run some errands. Your whole family left the house. You're running around town. And while you're gone, your neighbor went into his garage, got out a jerry can filled with gas, walked down the street to your house, splashed the gas on the side of your house, lit a match, threw it on there, and watched as your house and everything that you own burned to the ground. And then later, when he was arrested and brought before the judge, his lawyer says... Well, I know that he burned their house to the ground, but your honor, you have to understand that they weren't home. So no one was hurt. So it's not that big a deal. And, and then he would go on and say, plus, your honor, my client is a good man. I mean, he runs a successful business in town. He employs all kinds of people so that they can feed their families. He treats his employees good. They all like him. In fact, my client, he, he, he coaches Little League Baseball. And all his other neighbors love him. They think he's a wonderful guy. He puts on barbecues all the time. And plus, he, he's not part of a drug cartel. He's not selling drugs to little kids. He, he didn't murder anyone. He didn't, he didn't steal from people. He's really just a good guy who made a mistake. So, so you shouldn't punish him. You should reward him. Now, if the judge agreed with him, I mean, you would go ballistic, wouldn't you? I mean, you would, you would scream and rage against the injustice of it all. Because what he did was wrong. And it must be punished. 
He should be based on the same basis as everyone else, on the basis of his actions, because that's the foundation of justice. See, justice demands that there's an impartial standard of right and wrong, regardless of who someone is. They can't just say, well, I'm a good guy. It doesn't work that way. And Paul says, this is how God operates. He doesn't let people off just because they've been mostly good. That would be unjust. That would be wrong. Instead, God is utterly impartial when it comes to judgment. There is no us who are basically good and, and should be let off easy and them who are basically evil and should be condemned. I mean, the standard is the same for everyone, no matter who you are. Second point that Paul makes. But then, but then that raises a, a, another question. Well, okay, Paul, I get that. But, but, but what about people who have never heard about God's laws? What about people who have never heard about the Bible? I mean, is it fair that they're judged by God based upon the fact that they've never heard? It's a good question. And so Paul says, yeah, let's answer that question as well. Here's, the, here's what he says next in verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will also be judged under the law. Now, in, in Paul's day, remember, the law referred to the Old Testament, to, to the law of God. So it's kind of like him saying, look, in our day, it'd be like all who sin, having known what the Bible teaches, will be judged under the, what they know from what the Bible teaches. But all who sin, not knowing what the Bible teaches, will be judged on the basis of not knowing what the Bible teaches. And so here's what he talks, first of all, for those who know the Bible. In verse 13, he says this, For it is not those who hear the law, those who know the Bible, who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Paul says, look, it doesn't matter if you have the Bible. I mean, it doesn't matter if you know the Bible inside and out, if you can quote memory verses, if you can articulate the gospel with perfect clarity, it doesn't matter if you know the finer points of Calvinistic or Arminian theology and can debate them all day long. It doesn't matter what you know. The judgment is based on how you act. If you know all the Bible, but don't act according to it, then you're going to be, that, that, that doesn't help you. You'll be judged according to your actions if you know the Bible. But then for those who don't know the Bible, who've never heard of it, of God's law. Here's what, here's what Paul says about them in verse 14 and 15. Indeed, when Gentiles, in this case those who didn't know the law, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. So here's, here's what Paul says. He says those who don't have the law, those who don't have the Bible, nevertheless have a moral conscience that guides their actions and by which they will be judged. See, it's not the written law of God before them on a piece of paper, but rather it's the moral law of God written in their hearts. It's kind of like this. You know, sometimes Nula and I invite people over for, for dinner uh, in an evening, and, and, and sometimes because it's a busy day, uh, Nula has to run out and, and buy some last-minute you know, stuff for, the, for when people come over. So she's gone, and, and, and I come home about an hour before people show up from work, and it's been a busy day for me too. We've both been busy, and, and sometimes the house isn't quite tidy enough for guests to come over. Now, when I come home, there's, there's this, this 
you know, I sometimes think, well, you know, you know, she didn't actually ask me to clean the house. I checked my phone. She's like, she, she didn't text me saying that I should clean the house. So, so technically, if I just put my feet up for the next hour and relax, I should be good. But there's another little thing in me that says, huh, John, even though she didn't actually say that, you probably should. Because it's the right thing to do. And because if you don't, when our guests leave, you will have a conversation with your wife that you probably don't want to have. And you will rightly receive some of the wrath of your wife. And some of you are saying, well, uh, John, your wife shouldn't have to tell you these things. And to that, I would say, you're right. I mean, that's the very point that the apostle Paul is making when it comes to the moral law of God. Even if someone doesn't have the moral law of God spoken to them or, or texted to them or, or written in black and white on a piece of paper before them, because God has written it on their hearts, they just know what right and wrong is. The, the, their conscience guides them around that. Which means, Paul points out, that sometimes uh, they do really good things. Beautiful things, awesome things, the kind of things that, that just please God to no end. In fact, often they do better things than Christians. I mean, they're, they're wonderful things that they do. Paul does not deny that at all. But on the flip side, when they sin, when they do things that, that are wrong, even though they don't have the law of God written before them, their conscience warns them, and, and, then, and then ultimately condemns them for what they're doing, which means that even though they don't know the Bible, they're still liable for their actions before God. And this is Paul's point now. Christian or not, everyone is, there, is liable for their actions before God. It doesn't matter who you are. No one, no one can claim ignorance of God's law. No one will be able to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, your judgment's not fair because I just didn't know. So let, let's review for a moment because we come to the end of this passage what Paul has said. So far, Paul has said this, we are all sinners. It doesn't matter who you are, how good you think you are. The line between good and evil runs right through the middle of you just as it does everyone else. Secondly, he said God's standard for judgment is impartial. Everyone is judged by the exact same standard. So no one gets a, a break because they were good. And you don't get a, a bad break because he's impartial. And thirdly, he says everyone is liable for their actions before God. No one can claim, I didn't know. Now here's how Paul ends this section of his letter. In verse 16, he says this. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Paul ends by saying two things. First of all, on judgment day, all the secrets will come out. There will be no miscarriage of justice on judgment day. All the facts will be known. All will be laid bare. Everything will be truly seen for what it is. And on that day, no one will be able to charge God as being unfair or unjust. None of us will be in a place to say, well, I basically was inherently good, so you should reward me and punish them. And none of us will be able to say, well, the standard you applied to them is different than the standard you applied to me. It's not fair. And none of us will be in a place to say, well, I just didn't know. 
No one. I mean, not even the greatest heroes of the Bible. In fact, in a culture, in a culture where saying sorry is almost impossible or I was wrong, not only for politicians, but in workplaces and, and in, in families, in the midst of this kind of a culture, the Bible, again, seems intent to go out of its way to present even the greatest heroes of the faith as this sort of rogues gallery of, of people who lie and steal and commit adultery and covet and hate and kill and find a hundred, a thousand and one different ways to not love the Lord their God with all their hearts and souls and minds and strength. I mean, Abraham. Abraham was a coward and he betrayed his wife. And Moses was presumptuous and struck the rock. And David was an adulterer and a manipulator. And, and, and Peter is impulsive and arrogant and denies his own savior in his time of greatest need. And Paul, the apostle Paul, the one who writes these very words, was a murderer. He tortured Christians and put them to death simply because of their faith of Jesus, in Jesus. And these are the leaders of the faith. These are the heroes. No other religion, no other ideology is so fastidious, so careful to systematically point out the real, concrete, serious flaws of the leaders. Because a biblical worldview teaches this truth, that the, the line between good and evil runs through Everyone, all of us, even the greatest of us. The only exception, the only exception is Jesus Christ. He alone meets the standard of moral perfection, which means that he alone has the right to judge our sins. And this is the other point that Paul makes in this last verse. Jesus will do the judging, which is terrifying if you think about it, which means that we are doomed. But because Jesus is without sin, because he is without sin, it also means that he alone can be the substitute in our place when it comes to the wrath and punishment of God. He alone can and did pay the price for our sins through his death on the cross when he absorbed that wrath that was due to you and me. And therefore, we no longer come under God's punishment if we accept what he did in our place. See, the one who judges us is also our Savior. That, that's the good news. That, that's the message of the gospel. So if you haven't accepted that from Jesus, then you should today. I mean, no matter how good you think you are, you do not want to stand before him on judgment day, having stored up all of that for all of your life to be poured out all on one day. No one is that good. You will be crushed under the weight of your own sins and experience the full wrath of God. And the call, the invitation today is to turn to Jesus and invite him to come and to, and to take on his life in your life. And if you're a follower of Jesus, for goodness sakes, don't fall into the trap of thinking that somehow you're better than others because you're not as bad as them, as they, as, as those guys. That's self-righteousness, and there is nothing attractive about that. At whatever point you condemn them, you bring judgment on yourself, because as Paul says, you do the same things. Plus, plus, if you think that you are such a good person because you're a Christian, it leads to a deep sense of entitlement and to ingratitude, because you forget the incredible gift of Jesus' death in your place. 
Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 1500s, uh, wrote to his protege, to a guy named Philip Melanchthon, ah, I can never say his name, Melanchthon, in August of 1521. And he exhorts him to preach the true mercy of God. But he goes on to write that you can't actually preach and present the true mercy of God until you preach and present a true understanding of sin, not an imaginary understanding of sin. He says, God saves real sinners, not imaginary sinners. And then Luther concludes his letter this way. He says this, pray hard for you're quite a sinner. I like that. That's a way to end a letter. Pray hard, John, because you're quite a sinner. Pray hard because the sin is part of your life and you need Jesus in your life. You need a savior. You know, when we remember that we are truly sinners, then we know that there is true grace. Then we see how very good God has been to us. When we remember that we are sinners, then we walk in humility with everyone else. Then we walk in humility before our God. Then we walk with incredible gratitude. And then, and then we worship God because he would send his own son, Jesus, to pay the price so we could be right with him. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we, we come to you today on this passage that is very clear, that pulls no punches, God. It just communicates so clearly to us that not only are we sinners, but God, that we are due your punishment. Oh God, forgive us for our sins. Oh God, forgive us for the times where we have turned away, where we have judged others, where we have lived in hypocrisy. Oh God, would you please forgive us? Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you sent him not only to judge sins, to ensure that justice was done, but also that you sent him to save us, to pay the price for our sins. And so God, may we walk in deep humility. May we walk in incredible gratitude. May we worship you deeply, God, because of who you are and what you've done. We thank you and we bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I will thank you for coming and joining us today. I hope you've been encouraged, even as you face the truth of who we are before God. Uh, the beauty is the, the message of the gospel. And later, the Apostle Paul, as he works his way through the book of Romans, comes to this verse. And I want to send you out with this today. Therefore, he writes, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. May you go today in the confidence and the grace that comes from knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Have a great day. See you next week.